Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, a view from inside Gaza's Al-Aqsa Hospital from British surgeon Dr Nick Maynard. The hospital is caught in the crossfire of war. Now, Nick has just returned to the UK after spending two weeks there with the charity Medical Aid for Palestinians, helping victims of the Israeli bombardment of Gaza which followed the massacre and hostage-taking of Israelis by Hamas on October the 7th. The death toll on both sides is grim. 1,200 Israelis died on October the 7th. 23,000 Palestinians have been killed in the counter-offensive, which Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said was aimed at destroying Hamas's governing and military capabilities and to bring the hostages home. Before we hear from Nick, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper called The Byline Times. If you haven't read it yet, well, you really must. It features the best of our online offerings and some fantastic content that you can't read anywhere else. If you're interested in taking out a subscription, do head over to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Dr. Nick Maynard. And Nick, before we talk about what you've seen recently at Al-Aqsa, I know that you're not a newbie, so to speak, in Gaza. You've been travelling there for a number of years. And I know that healthcare prior to the current attack by Israel has itself been questionable for some time. Yeah, thank you very much for asking me on. So I've been going to Gaza for many years. I think the first trip I went on in was 2010, and I've been there most years except for COVID and sometimes two or three times a year. I've done a lot of teaching of medical students and doctors there, but also in recent years I've been involved with Medical Aid for Palestinians in providing or or taking part in their surgical missions to teach and carry out major specialty surgery, shall we say, in the Gaza hospital. So my main specialty interest is, is cancer surgery and advanced keyhole surgery. So I've been doing quite a bit of that with the surgeons in Shifa Hospital and the European Gaza Hospital, which of course is in the news at the moment, just outside Khan Yunis. And in so-called quiet times, I mean, of course, it's never quiet in Gaza. I've never been there where there hasn't been aerial attacks by the Israeli Air Force. Uh, I've witnessed it every single time I've been there. But in so-called quieter times, the health service is still under-resourced and many essential equipments and other resources are very lacking even in so-called quieter times. But our experiences in the last two weeks are in a different league and completely different to anything we've ever witnessed before. Before we touch on that, Nick, I think it is just worth flagging up, though, that Gaza is classed as an occupied territory by the United Nations and Israel, as the occupying force, does have an obligation to provide adequate health care. And the UN itself has said that one and a half million Palestinians, nearly one and a half million Palestinians in both Gaza and in the West Bank, have health-related humanitarian assistance needs. So that's a demonstration, as far as the UN is concerned, that prior to this very particular moment, healthcare has clearly been lacking in Gaza. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. And at the beginning of this podcast, you you, you mentioned, you know, since the events on October the 7th, and, and 
there's a perception elsewhere in the media, of course, that it all started then. But as you quite correctly say, it didn't start then. Israel has been an occupier of Gaza for many years now, and it has restricted, beyond any doubt in my experience, the provision of adequate resources to provide proper health care. They're very limited in what they can provide in terms of health care in Gaza, and they rely upon resources coming in. And that is sometimes very lacking indeed. It's also worth pointing out that many patients who cannot get the right treatment in Gaza cannot get out to seek the treatment elsewhere. And that's something that people don't always appreciate. Uh, There are some patients who can get out either to Egypt or through Israel to get to the West Bank or to Jordan. But the delays in those patients getting out can sometimes amount to several months. And I've witnessed this happening. And of course, if you've got cancer or other time-critical diseases, the prognosis will change irretrievably because of those delays. I've also witnessed children sometimes going out for treatment, often very delayed, but going out without their parents getting agreement to go out as well. So either the children don't go because their parents aren't allowed or they go by themselves. And you can imagine how appalling that would be for those poor children. The provision of healthcare is very, very restricted, even in quieter times. Yeah, the Gaza, of course, is governed by Hamas, which Israel regards as a terrorist organisation, which the United Kingdom regards as a terrorist organisation as well. It's sometimes accused of appropriating international funds to further its own military ends. How much of that is a contributory factor to the poor healthcare in Gaza? Well, I'm not a politician. I don't have an accurate answer to that. And I don't know the answer to that. What I can say is what my very close friends and colleagues with whom I've worked for years in Gaza say, they claim that is not a problem. Now, I can't say more than that. I, I don't know what, how much of that, but but I do know that the healthcare resources are greatly limited in what can go in. Tell me what you've seen in the last couple of weeks, please. Since the atrocities on October the 7th in Israel and the subsequent retaliation by the IDF. I've been in contact and and other colleagues of mine in Oxford have been in contact with our medical friends in Gaza daily. So we've seen photographs, we've spoken to them on a daily basis about how awful things have been there. And we thought we were adequately prepared for what we were going to see. But it was far worse than we had expected, even though we've had that regular contact with our colleagues over there. The first thing that struck me, actually, was when we were driving from the Rafa border crossing within a couple of hours of arriving to our accommodation west of Khan Yunis in Al Moasi. And it's a journey of a few kilometres, and it took us nearly three hours because the absolutely vast amount of traffic of people evacuating from middle Gaza down towards Rafa and hundreds upon hundreds of cars 
and carts led by donkeys and people walking, carrying as many possessions as they could, moving down south. Uh, and I've never dreamt I could see something like that. And then when we arrived in the hospital that first day, we'd read about the overcrowding of the healthcare facilities and nothing had prepared us for what we saw. It was the most concentrated mass of people I've ever seen in my life. The surroundings of Al-Aqsa Hospital, and to put it in perspective, it's a relatively small hospital. It has about 150 beds normally. They've got about well over 600 patients there currently, but of course, the, most patients have all their relatives as well, and many, many inhabitants of Middle Gaza have migrated towards the hospital as a shelter. And we saw this with Shifa Hospital. We saw it with other hospitals. They go there when they've been when their houses have been destroyed because they perceive it to be a safe area. And so outside the hospital, there's essentially a sort of a new town has built up by people constructing tents, and I don't mean tents as in what we consider to be tents, I'm talking about makeshift shelters using any material they can and have built this up around the hospital on the road. And there are many thousands of people living there. No sanitation, clearly extreme poverty. And it gets worse when you walk into the hospital because they've done the same in the hospital grounds. When you walk in through the doors of the hospital, it is an unbelievable sight. Every square foot of the floor space in the reception areas, on the wards, on the staircases, in the recovery area of theatres are just hundreds and or thousands of patients and relatives, some of them in beds, most of them lying on the floor. They've built temporary shelters within the hospital, so they've constructed their own tents in the hospital to get some privacy, which is understandable. And many of these people are patients. So outside the hospital, the first patient I saw was a patient lying on the ground outside the hospital with a chest strain in, having recently had thoracic surgery for a blast injury, intravenous fluids going. It was the sort of scenes I would never have expected to have seen in any healthcare setting in the current period. You've been the clinical lead for the charity, for MAP, inside the hospital. What kinds of injuries have you personally had to deal with? So I'm an abdominal and chest surgeon, so I've been dealing with abdominal and chest injuries. I have spent some time in the emergency department, but I've been mainly in theatres dealing with those sort of injuries. So most of them have been blast injuries from bombs, and they're essentially shrapnel injuries with multiple sometimes pieces of shrapnel going into the chest and the abdomen causing untold damage to the internal organs. So we've seen horrendous injuries to the lungs. We've seen horrendous injuries to all the abdominal organs with multiple pieces of shrapnel tearing the internal organs to pieces. And we've been operating on that predominantly. In terms of volume of injuries, the biggest volume of injuries, of course, are to the limbs and burns as well. So the orthopaedic surgeons in the in the hospital, we didn't have any orthopaedic surgeons in our team, but the orthopaedic surgeons are seeing the biggest volume of injuries and, and multiple people are being admitted with traumatic amputations of legs and arms. Many of these small children as well, I hasten to add, and many, many people with the most appalling burns. And the time I spent in the emergency department, I saw burns I, I will never, ever want to see again and, and images which I 
we'll never be able to forget, frankly, of little children with the most appalling burns, awful injuries we saw. And just so we're clear, and this may not, I guess, be immediately apparent when you think that Hamas are essentially fighting a guerrilla war, but the people who you have been treating are not people who would be obviously identifiable, who would not identify themselves as fighters in this conflict. These are innocent civilians. Yeah, they're innocent children and women, most of them. There have been men who we've treated, and I have no idea whether they were or were not affiliated with Hamas, but I can assure you the majority of the victims are women and children, and children three, four, five, six years of age. Many, 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 half the population of Gaza are children, and the majority of the injuries we saw were in children and women, and some young men, but mainly women and children, so clearly not Hamas terrorists. There is specific provision in international humanitarian law to protect hospitals. Was that element of international law being respected? Most certainly not. I saw no evidence of that. And the contacts we've had with colleagues at Al-Aqsa Hospital since we left there, the attacks have escalated on the hospital. And in previous trips to Gaza, I've seen hospitals targeted. I am very, very clear the evidence I have seen and the evidence from people I know and trust and have been close to for many years at Shifa Hospital, I'm in no doubt that the healthcare facilities have been targeted with what I seems very clear to me is the clear intention of dismantling completely the healthcare system of Gaza. The other hospital that you've mentioned, Al-Shifa, was accused by Israel of being cover for a command centre for Hamas and the site of a, a network of tunnels that aided Hamas. Have you seen anything like that at Al-Aqsa? No, and I've, and I've seen nothing like that at Shifa either. I mean, I'll address that very directly. I think the evidence that's been presented is not remotely credible in my view and the view of many others. I've worked in Shifa Hospital for many years. More importantly, people I've been very close to for many years have been working there since October the 7th, before the hospital was completely disabled. And there has never been any evidence that Hamas has been using the hospital as a command centre. Now, of course, I have no idea what was going on in the tunnels underneath, so I can't comment on that. But I'm very confident that the hospital itself was not being used in that way. And if one looks at the evidence being presented, I mean, one of the photos that was presented to us as evidence of it being used as a mass command centre was the, the view of weapons, metal arms in the MRI scanning department. Now, MRIs work by a huge magnet. The notion that anyone would store metal arms next to the a huge magnet is is fanciful, frankly. So I don't think the evidence is credible at all. And certainly at Al-Aqsa Hospital in the last two weeks, there has been zero evidence of any of that sort of activity. You've also visited a shelter, I think, outside the hospital. Tell me about that. 
So we went to one of the UNRWA shelters near Hanunis. And bear in mind, this was an UNRWA shelter with some medical aid going there. More than 50% of the shelters are governmental shelters without any healthcare provision at all currently. So I saw what is known to be one of the best shelters, but it was still a fairly horrific sight. When you say UNRWA, just so we're clear, not everybody will be familiar with the jargon, that's the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. So that's run by the UN, essentially. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for clarifying that. So the shelter I went to had, um, we went there because we wanted to see whether MAP could put a team in there to help with healthcare provision. There are 40,000 people in that shelter that I visited in a space of 60,000 square metres, so one and a half square metres per individual. There was one toilet per 650 people. So people were queuing three to four hours each time they wanted to go to a toilet. For that 40,000 people, there were three healthcare stations, each of which was manned by two or three people at a time, a couple of nurses, the very occasional doctor, and they in total were able to see less than 2,000 people a day, allocating them a very small amount of time, clearly, which again was woefully inadequate for the 40,000 population, many of whom were unwell with many healthcare conditions. It was a a really horrific place to visit. And I was very conscious of the fact that this was one of the better shelters and the governmental shelters were much worse. I mentioned at the start that Israel's stated intention when it retaliated for the attacks on October the 7th was to destroy Hamas's governing and military capabilities and to bring the hostages home. I just wonder how that is playing out amongst ordinary people in Gaza, how you perceive attitudes towards Israel to be now and how they may compare with how they were before the atrocity of October the 7th. So these people have been living under the Israeli occupation for for many, many years. And as I mentioned earlier, I've never been to Gaza when I haven't witnessed aerial bombardment of the country. And that is extremely important context. I'm appalled by all loss of civilian life. I'm appalled by the events on October the 7th, as any human being would be, I think. But this didn't start on October the 7th. This has been going on for many, many years. And they have been living under what any civilised person would consider to be intolerable and inhumane conditions for many, many years. And that is very important context. So these wonderful Gazan people feel as if they've been prisoners for many years. So they do not condone the killing of innocent Israelis in any way at all. Certainly the ones I've spoken to do not condone it in any way at all. But they have been living the most intolerable imprisoned life for many, many years. And and I think that has to be considered in the context of what's going on. I've seen surveys which suggest that people in Israel and people in Gaza, the vast majority of them on both sides do not believe in a two-state solution. 
which is the preferred solution of the United States, of the United Kingdom, and of the West in general. As a long-time visitor to that area, do you see any prospects for peace in future? Golly, um, it's very difficult to see where this is going. It's very difficult to see how any two-state solution could be feasible now. I mean, I don't know. None of us know what's, what's going to be in Gaza in a few months' time. Rafa, which has got a population of 250,000, now has a one and a half million people in it. It's going to get worse over the next few weeks as middle Gaza moves down. The next stop after Rafa is Egypt, of course. So I don't know if there's going to be anyone in Gaza at the end of this campaign. So I think that the notion of, I mean, you're absolutely right. We The world's got to start thinking of what happens after all of this, but it's anyone's guess. And, and it, it's very difficult to imagine how a two-state solution could work. And what will happen now to your medical work, to the work that MAP do? Will you be heading out to Gaza again soon? Yeah, another team's taken over from us. They're, they're going into Gaza today. They'll be there for two weeks. Another team, we're, we're lining up another team to go on after then. We're, we're, we've learned a lot in the last two weeks about the right structure of the teams, uh, and we're changing the structure to take into account of our experiences. But yes, I'll be going in as soon as I can, probably six to eight weeks' time I'll be going in. And I, I'm very keen to go in every couple of months. And there's a lot of us volunteering to do this. There's a lot of people who want to go in and help. But given what's happening when you go back, you'll be putting your life on the line. Well, I think MAP is, as I think I mentioned earlier, MAP is a is a wonderful organisation, and the the MAP staff on the ground are some of the bravest and most inspirational people I have ever come across. They're Gazans; they've been living there all their lives. They have all had close family or close friends killed. They've all been displaced from their normal homes. Every single one of them. On our last day there, one of the staff was blown up in her house. Members of her family were killed. And yet they looked after us wonderfully well. They have a very, very close grasp of what's going on with regards to where the IDF are, what the security is like. And we felt very confident being looked after by them. So we will plan on going in again as soon as possible and hopefully in, in six to eight weeks time what of course is unknown is where we will be able to practice because the number of hospitals where one can provide health care is diminishing by the week in, in gaza the only two remaining functioning hospitals in the south of gaza are the european hospital west of han yunis and the nasa medical complex in han yunis and they are we know that the idf ground forces are extremely close to those hospitals NASA hospital is no longer in a de-conflicted area. So many local doctors, all foreign doctors have left that hospital. We know that many local doctors are now leaving that hospital because they think it's unsafe. So I'm very, very concerned that those two hospitals will no longer be functioning in a few weeks' time. And if that is the case, then the only hospital left in south of Gaza is in Rafa, and that is a 60-bedded hospital which would not be able to cope. So I think we are very close to a situation when there may be no functioning healthcare system at all in Gaza. 
Good luck when you go back, Nick. Thank you so much for your time. That's Dr. Nick Maynard from Medical Aid for Palestinians. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast produced by We Bring Audio in Birmingham. If you do want to support the Byline Times podcast, then don't forget to take out a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You get full details over at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.